God is like Jesus, you remember. God has always been like Jesus. There's never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We have not always known what God is like, but now we do. And that's the, the, the starting point for our series on the Gospel of John, trying to look at Jesus and get an image of what God is like by looking at Jesus and hopefully bringing God more into our lives in more practical as well as all the other ways that he's in our life. Last week, as Julie already referred to, we um, talked about the first words that were said about Jesus, which were from John the Baptist, where he looked at Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God. Today, we're going to look, and of course this is from the Gospel of John, we're going to look at the first thing that God in Jesus did. So last week was the first words that someone spoke about him, and today is the first thing that Jesus did. And so we're going to read, it's a story that I'm sure is pretty familiar to you, from John chapter 2, the wedding feast at Cana. So if you have a Bible, turn it, or else it should appear on the wall or on your screen. I will mention that um, between what we talked about last week and this week, we have the story of Jesus calling his first disciples. I, I can't touch on everything in John. We have to skip over stuff or I'll be here for four years. Uh, so I'm just choosing uh, to, skip over, to skip over things. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Some of you know that I occasionally uh, officiate at weddings at the Mendenhall down in um, Kenneth Square. Mendenhall is like the best place to have an event in the whole area if you want to have an event in the area. Unpaid solicitation, uh, um, advertising. But I do a couple of weddings there a year, and when I do these weddings, I always meet with the couple beforehand for an hour, an hour and a half to two hours, depending on, on how, uh, how talkative they are. I'm not that super talkative myself, but um, 
And so you get to know uh, the family, you get to know the background, you get to know what's happened in, in the lives of the couple, and you get to know what's happened in their extended family. And I'm always wanting to know what kinds of tensions there are, who's not going to be there, who is going to be there, who's invited, who's not invited, and why is that? And in today's world, most of these couples are, are forming blended families. And so there is all kinds of complexities that happen in, the, in, these, in these families, including death. The last wedding I did, there actually was the urn containing the ashes of the oldest son of the bride. That urn was actually there at the wedding. So you get all these complexities. And really, when you stop and think about it, a wedding is probably one of the few moments in life that captures just about everything that life has to offer, if, if you just stop and think about it. Of course, there's this massive change in the lives of these two people who are getting married, of course, moving from singleness into, into becoming a couple. But for the parents of the bride or the groom, there's my child who I remember was just this little baby just like a few minutes ago, and now she's walking down the aisle. So you move in as parents into a new category, and not only that, of course, if you're, if you're a parent of someone who's gotten married, then the first, one of the very first things you're thinking about, oh, when are the grandchildren coming? And so you have this whole, this whole moving ahead of generations. There's the remembrance of the past generations. Maybe, maybe your parent, your, if you're the parents of the bride, your parents are there, so the grandparents are there. Sometimes the great-grandparents are there. You have all, this, all these generations and the uncles and the aunts and, and the brothers and sisters. There's deep joy. But there's also very often deep tension. It's tensions that run through the family. Again, if there's a blended family, there can be, there can be pain on all sides. Sometimes there's sadness about what's happened in the past. Sometimes people come from really broken backgrounds and, and are trying to find themselves again. Oftentimes there's concern about what's going to happen in the future. Is this going to turn out? Sometimes you're sitting there as your parent and you say, whoa, I don't know if this is really such a good idea, but I don't have much choice. He or she has chosen for him or her. And then oftentimes, and I always ask this, are, are there relatives who have passed on who, who you would like to be mentioned so that we remember that, that there's also that sadness of, of a beloved grandfather or a beloved uncle or, in this case, a beloved son who passed on? So all of this is captured in this. We don't often think about it, but, but it, it's really there. It's, just, it's this multi-layered complexity of past and present and future, of joy and sorrow and tension. And at this wedding feast in Cana, in addition to that, there were, of course, tremendous social, economic, and political tensions. Again, I say this often from here, if you think our time is rough, you should be back then. Things were really, really rough. I mean, it was an occupied country. The Romans were there. There was oppression. There was poverty. There was violence. You didn't know what was going to happen from one day to the next. The whole, there was this, there was this tension in the air. And then during this wedding, this catastrophe happened. They ran out of wine. 
And for us, that wouldn't maybe be such a terrible thing. But in that time and in that culture, this was really a disaster. It brought great shame and loss of face on the family hosting the wedding. The whole community, the whole village, the whole group of people there might think, well, if they can't get this right, are they getting anything else right? These events, and then, and then, in the middle of this wedding ceremony, with there being no wine, to put it in the language of our series, God shows up. Okay? There's all this tension, all this complexity, and now there's this crisis, and God shows up. See, things can go wonderfully well, but they can also go dramatically wrong. And most often, there's no real indication of which it will be. You just don't know. The best laid plans of mice and men can, and often will, go awry. We tend to think that joy and success come to those who do things according to the book, which, at the age of all of you listening, you already know isn't true. And we also believe and hope sometimes that those who flaunt the rules will shipwreck their lives. You can't flaunt the rules and succeed. That's not so either. Life doesn't sort itself out in be good and have success and act badly and suffer. In fact, life is often very confusing and contradictory, not to mention sometimes extraordinarily unfair and painful. I do not deserve that which just happened. Ecclesiastes uses the word absurd. You may remember Ecclesiastes uses the word vanity. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. One way to translate that word is with the word absurd. It doesn't make sense. You can't put life in boxes and say, if I do this, then this will happen. If I act this way, then this will be the result. It just doesn't work that way. I'm reading a book by Ellen F. Davis called Getting Involved with God. It's about the Old Testament, a summary of the Old Testament. She has a chapter on Ecclesiastes. As I read it this week, it's really interesting. It gave me a key to identify with this miracle that happened at the wedding of Cana. And you could think this is a crazy connection. And even after I'm done, you may think this is a crazy connection. Feel free to feel that way. It may really be a crazy connection. And in the beginning, it's probably even a little bit nerdy. So just hang in with me here, and hopefully we'll get to the end and things will make some sense. And if not, well, then I've I've lost the game, to put it in baseball terms. But let me take you on this little journey 
and see see where we go. So let's read first from Ecclesiastes. I won't go into who all wrote this and all that kind of stuff. It's not, it's not super relevant. It's likely, it might have been Solomon, but anyway, someone who was quite experienced in life. I, the preacher, Koalet as he's called, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind, for as much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This writer has tried everything. He's done the whole gamut of everything that you can do to make a success out of his life. And he starts the book, we'll get to this, well, it's up on the screen already. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? He's making the point that I've been trying to make around this wedding, this wedding ceremony thing. You just can't plan it. You just can't say, if I do this, it's going to work out this way. It just doesn't work that way. It doesn't fit in nice little boxes. And for most of us, there is a tremendous amount of pain and disappointment in our lives, along with the joys and gladnesses that we experience. Now I'm going to quote from Davis a little bit. Again, it's a hair nerdy. I'm kind of sorry for that, but I just want to follow this line. Go with me. Go with me on this journey. Coalette, the preacher's radical naysaying, is a shock to the pious. Yet he's no mere cynic, content to strip us of illusions and then leave us comfortless. Rather, his naysaying is the means by which this teacher instructs us in a matter essential to the life of faith. This is the core of his teaching. Life can never be mastered if mastery means shaping it in conformity with our desires. The wedding at Cana could not be mastered. And your wedding or the wedding of your loved one cannot be mastered. And your life cannot be mastered. It can only be enjoyed when pleasures great and small come our way. What Coalette aims to instill in his students is the ability to receive the pleasures of life as the gift they are and to recognize God as the sole giver. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Receive the pleasures of life as the gift they are and to recognize God as the giver. It is often said that the message of Ecclesiastes is best summed up as carpe diem, seize the day, but the evidence belies that. The key verb in this book is not seize, but give. 
which occurs 28 times in these 12 chapters, and most often the one who gives is God. The essential message then is receive the gift. And then she goes on. We practice the core religious virtue of humility by noting with pleasure day by day the gifts that come to us from God. So what Ecclesiastes is trying to say to us is, is be humble. Receive from God the gifts of pleasure. And the truth is, most of those are given so regularly that we never even pause to recognize them for the gifts that they are. And she goes on, There's nothing better than that a person should take joy in his doings. Always Coalette is on the lookout for the possibility of joy, but vague encouragement, have a nice day, is not enough for him. He specifically urges us to realize three forms of happiness in our lives. Sensual pleasure, eating and drinking, sleep, sunlight, intimate relationships, friendships and conjugal love, and satisfaction in work. Right through all of the uncertainties, all of the absurdity of life, the preacher says, take joy in your doings, sensual pleasure, intimate relationships, and satisfaction in work. The reality of death conditions every moment of life. Coalette never lets us forget that our days under the sun are flying past and will soon be done. But he expects us to be cheerful despite that knowledge, indeed more cheerful because of it. And then she quotes from Ecclesiastes 9. Go eat with pleasure your bread and drink with a happy heart your wine, for already God has approved your doings. In every season, let your clothes be white, and let not oil be lacking upon your head. Enjoy life with the woman or man you love. All the days of your fleeting life, your vanity life, your hateful life is the, is the Hebrew word there, which God has given you under the sun all your fleeting days. For what is your portion in life and in your toil for which you are toiling under the sun? For all his debunking, Colette never dismisses joy itself as vanity and absurdity, mere ephemerality. Rather, joy and havel are complementary. Joy is the one thing strong enough to stand up in the face of all that is disappointing. In the face of the fact that all we do achieve and value is passing away and will surely be forgotten. And then the last quote. To the perpetually anxious, Coalette offers the healthful asceticism of letting go of our vain pretense to determine the future and instead focusing resolutely on the present. Here it comes, receiving with an open hand the pleasures and opportunities it offers. So here at this wedding feast of Cana, with all of its tensions, and all of its hopes, and all of its joys, God shows up. And what does God do? He serves 
the best wine. A hundred and eighty gallons of it. I don't know how many gallons you, you folks serve at 150, 200 men. It's probably not 180 gallons, is it? Nowhere near. 180 gallons of the best wine. In the absurdity of life, in the I can't put it in a package, I don't know what to expect. I can't count on the fact that if I act a certain way, I'm going to get a certain result. In all of that, the first thing that God does in Jesus is serve 180 gallons of the best wine. I came, says Jesus, later in John, John chapter 10, that they might have life and have it abundantly. So here's my question to you. As you think about who God is and all the things that you've learned about God throughout your whole life, is this like one of the first things? Again, it's fascinating to me that this is the first story that John tells about what Jesus does. There's almost nothing spiritual about it at all. It's 180 gallons of the best wine. God in Jesus comes into the sometimes absurd life, lives of normal people like you and like me. And he gives the gift of the best wine. That's what God does. It's not the whole story, not everything, doesn't fix everything, but it's there, the best wine for today, for today. That's a hard thing to grasp. What does that mean? I, I can't tell you that. I'm just giving it for you to take away and think about it. Is your image of God such a one that right at the beginning, right at the forefront, one of the first things you think about is, where is the best wine that he is offering me today or in, in this period of my life, in spite of all the troubles and tensions? What gift am I receiving? And how can I receive it with humility? And I wonder if this also might be a way for us to look at our little congregation here. In the midst of all the questions that we have, the things we don't understand, we've been here so long, and so many of us have worked so hard, and Trinity has done wonderful things, and has provided community for so many, and still does. And yet perhaps we have the feeling that the wine's run out. As we think about that, and as we pray about that, and as we talk about it, what might happen if we started to think, okay, the wine has run out. 
the first thing that God did when he came to earth was turn water into 180 gallons of the best wine. What might that say for us as a community here in this place? I don't know. But I'm asking the question, and again, I find it fascinating. Never thought about it this way before. The very first thing that God does when he shows up in the person of Jesus is give 180 gallons of the best wine. In spite of all the absurdity and all the craziness and all the tension and all the pain and all the sorrow and all the loss, this is the first thing that he does. And how can we as individuals, how can we as families, how can we as a community here at Trinity, in humility, open our hearts and minds and hands and receive that gift? Amen.